0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Olorunipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this
1: is
2: Amy Britton calling from The Post.
0: This is Peter Jameson from The Washington this Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, September 1st. Today, why the president wants to ban TikTok, what the pandemic means for international students, and a dispatch from a college freshman.
3: TikTok is like a short form video app. Typically, videos are between like 15 and 60 seconds long. And at this point, with how the app is evolving, I really do think that there's a place for everybody on the app. My name is Bria Jones. I am Hey Bria Jones online. And right now on TikTok, I have about 315,000 followers.
4: TikTok, we may be banning TikTok, we may be doing some other things or a couple of options, but a lot of things are happening. So we'll see what happens. But we are looking at a lot of alternatives with respect to TikTok.
3: It's, of course, a scary thought to think about that we wouldn't have TikTok anymore. And that is definitely a revenue stream for me.
2: It's been kind of a whirlwind summer for TikTok. TikTok has been growing like crazy in the US, especially during the pandemic. It's really just kind of like exploded in popularity. So many people are using it. It's become kind of the go-to, you know, I want to scroll through and see what's going on app. But at the same time, tensions between the Trump administration and China are escalating, especially during the period of the coronavirus, or as Trump keeps referring to it, the China virus. I'm Rachel Lerman. I'm a technology reporter at the Washington Post. Now, while this is happening, Trump has also been lashing out at other social media companies, American-based as well.
4: President Trump is making good on his threat tanning banning TikTok and WeChat from operating in the U.S. within 45 days, unless they're sold.
0: TikTok has now sued the Trump administration in response to the executive order, which is supposed to go into effect on September 20th. And all of this is happening because the president says that TikTok is a threat to national security. He says the company might send consumer data to the Chinese government.
2: As far as we can tell, the information that you're basically giving out when you're using TikTok isn't leaving the country. And TikTok has said again and again that they store all U.S. customer information in the U.S. with backups in Singapore. But the issue is that the Chinese government does exert a lot of control over the companies based in its country. So the concern is sort of that, okay, even if they're not sharing the information now, could they be compelled to later? And the company has said, no, you know, we keep the data so separate that that wouldn't happen. But that's kind of the concern.
0: And I'm curious if TikTok's data collecting operations are all that different from what we see from American social media companies like Twitter or Facebook.
2: No, they're totally not. I mean, Facebook and Google, right? And Twitter are collecting so much information on us. They know what we like, they know where we live, they know what we're looking at and how much we're using their apps. And TikTok is in broad strokes collecting really similar information. The issue is really just that TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, is based in Beijing and all those other companies are based in America.
0: So when President Trump says that he's going to ban TikTok, like what exactly is his mechanism for doing that?
2: Basically, under the international emergency economic
0: powers. Can I pause you for a second when you say the international emergency economic powers? Like what actually is that and what powers does that give to the president to come down on a social media company?
2: So it's these powers that are granted to the president that basically says if there is some sort of emergency and there's a national security threat by like a foreign government or some sort of foreign company or agent, the president can say, "Okay, well, we got to shut this down. We have to take emergency action. We have to act. So this has been around for for a long time, for decades. And. The way that he's using it now, though, it's never really been used before. We've never seen a ban like this against a major consumer app that would actually get rid of something that so many of us use every single day. So the act has been around for a while, but this use of it is really unprecedented.
0: What what does that mean? Like, what are the different ways that, that this could actually be executed?
2: So the order says it's going to ban any transactions between basically people in the U.S. or companies in the U.S. with TikTok via ByteDance. But they didn't define what transactions mean. So most likely it could be things like Apple and Google wouldn't be able to put it on their app stores, which means that if you had the app already downloaded, you could probably still use it, but you wouldn't be able to get updates or like security patches. And that can really make an app deteriorate pretty quickly. It also probably means that businesses wouldn't be able to sign contracts with TikTok and maybe means that employees wouldn't be able to work there. Hmm. And there's about 1,500 people in the U.S. that work for TikTok. But none of this has been defined and the Commerce Department doesn't even have to define it until it takes place. So until the ban goes into effect, we might not even know the specifications.
0: That's interesting. So, so the idea that on September 20th or September 21st that all of a sudden this app is just going to disappear from everybody's phones in, in one swoop. That seems less likely than this kind of piecemeal approach where there are other smaller actions that the administration could take that would eventually diminish TikTok's ability to be popular and, and widely used here.
2: Yeah, right. Totally. The government in the US doesn't really have a way to like reach into our phones and remove the TikTok app, nor can it really compel others to do that for them. Like we don't have a great firewall like they do in China. There was a concern for a little while that transaction could even mean, oh, what if that counts as, you know, you swiping through TikTok or making and posting a TikTok. Hmm. But a lot of the experts we've talked to think that That's not really going to happen because it would just be so hard to
0: enforce. And they're not going to arrest millions of 16-year-olds who are posting their, like, silly videos. Right. That's not a great look. (laughs) And is there anyone who is trying to save TikTok and the parent company, ByteDance? Can they do anything to try to stop this executive order from being enacted? So
2: basically... ByteDance is in a tough position because not only was there this first order, there was also a second order that using a different mechanism of international powers granted to the government, it said that ByteDance would have to divest TikTok in the U.S. based on this acquisition they made a few years ago. So ByteDance is really in a tough place. They're best solution seems to be to sell TikTok's U.S. operations to another company. And luckily, there's actually lots of companies interested.
0: Well, it's a highly successful company. So I would imagine that a lot of social media companies would be interested in bringing it in under their business. Is that actually going to happen? Like, do we know who is interested in buying it? And if it were to be bought, would that just solve all the problems? So
2: Microsoft seems to be the leading suitor to buy TikTok. And now it appears that they're actually working with Walmart in somewhat of an unexpected partnership. But Walmart is interesting because shopping, like you can sell things through social media. And Microsoft is interested because they don't really have a social media company right now like LinkedIn. But that's kind of, you know, it's a different piece of social media. And then we're also hearing that Oracle is interested. And that would be probably more of a data play because they're a big cloud provider. And so they would get a lot of information about, you know, what users are into and what they're doing and how they're using things. And there's even been some reports that like Twitter and things like that are interested. The thing is for the bigger social media companies in the US for like Facebook or Google. It would be really tough for them to buy TikTok, even if they were interested, because although they have the money, they're already being investigated for anti-competitive concerns. And this would not help those uh, monopoly arguments.
0: And so aside from the potential that TikTok could get acquired by another company, is there anything else that could stop this executive order from happening? Are there like legal battles to just say that it is not constitutional to take off a big social media company just because it's owned by a company that's based in another country?
2: Yeah, so actually ByteDance and TikTok are suing. So they announced they were going to sue the Trump administration last week. And they basically said, "Okay, you know, we think that we are not a national security threat. And more than that, you didn't do this right. You didn't give us due process. We didn't have enough time to comment. They're basically saying the process wasn't fair. And it's really hard to say what's going to happen with
0: that lawsuit because we just haven't seen one like it before. So so when you think about what is going to be transpiring in the days leading up to this potential shutdown of TikTok, what is at stake here beyond just the fact that this is a really popular app and people would be really mad if they couldn't continue posting and watching videos on TikTok? But what does it say about where we're at in terms of how the government interacts with social media companies?
2: It's really interesting because just like you said, people would be super upset. It's like, it's a super fun app. It's a really great way of communicating. Lots of people have built their businesses on it. But more than that, this is a pretty unprecedented reach by the U.S. government to kind of limit what consumers are using. These international economic powers, I mean, they're used and we see, you know, trade sanctions and things like that go through. But to sanction this huge, big consumer app when we're not even positive that there is a national security threat is pretty unprecedented and does concern some people. the national security threat could be real, but it's just tough because there's not solid evidence that we've seen that it's happening yet. Apart from the national security concerns, it could signal a way that we're seeing the government's relationship with social media change. And I think that is something that other companies, even U.S.-based companies, are kind of wary about or keeping an eye on.
0: Rachel Lerman is a tech reporter for The Post.
5: One of the really interesting things about what's happened over the last few months is the way that the world that we knew was sort of interrupted at a random point in time and everything stopped. And we were interested in sort of finding some of the stories of the lives and trajectories that were changed. And one of the areas that we thought might be interesting was the huge numbers of international students, particularly Chinese students, that come to the United States every year. My name is Emily Rahala, and I cover foreign affairs. In general, what we've seen over, you know, the last... 10 years or more is a huge boom in students. It was growing by double digits every year. And what students were saying was that they were looking for an option that was different than the Chinese education system. And as China's economy boomed, more students were looking for an option that was different. And a lot of students were choosing the United States.
0: And why is it that American universities are really interested in getting students from abroad and specifically from China to come and attend here? There's two
5: parts of it. When you talk to admissions officers and university administrators, professors, the first thing that they'll all say is having international students, having students from around the world really adds to the quality of education for everyone. Another big part of it is, frankly, that international students tend to pay full tuition. And for a lot of schools in the United States that are perhaps facing budget cuts at the state level, competition for students, getting large numbers of students paying full freight helps subsidize the education of uh, U.S.-born students.
0: So you decided to follow two students for this story, students who were planning on coming to college in the U.S. Tell me about who they are and and why you wanted to follow them in particular.
5: First of all, I, I thought the moment in their lives was really interesting. Many of us can relate to that moment of change in your life when you're finishing high school and you're sort of at this inflection point with the whole future ahead of you. And I wanted to find students who could speak to that experience and for whom this moment was particularly, you know, revealing. Okay. um, Hi, everyone. My name is Haila Amin. The first is Haila Amin. I'm currently based in Beijing, China. And the second is Jingchu Lin.
1: Um, Hey, guys. um, I'm Jingchu, and I just turned 18 this year.
5: They met as young students at a really sort of prestigious Beijing elementary school, and both as students who got good grades, although they were pretty different at the time. Me and Jing Chu are super good friends. Back in
4: elementary school, uh, we were both very popular, but in a different way. Um, I was very socially popular, and he was very popular because he had very good
5: grades. By middle school, they were both on this track to go to a U.S. college, and it's a lot of work. It takes years of preparation. I study very
4: hard to improve my English, and later in middle school, I went to the United States to be an exchange student in the state of Virginia. And um, later, I went back to a high school in Beijing, but I started to study to get ready for a college application.
5: And I wanted to see how their thinking might or might not change as the semester ended and they were facing the summer before their freshman year.
0: So at least before the pandemic and everything around the world went crazy, um, what, what was their plan? Like, where were they planning or hoping to go?
5: So for Haila Amin, uh, who's now 18, her dream for this year uh, was to go to the University of Virginia. That was her top choice. It's a place I consider home in the United States. And she, I think, had this vision of like a triumphant return. She told me that she could picture, you know, her life going to the Chick-fil-A in Charlottesville. Going to basketball games and football games and um, cheering for school
4: and talking to students from all over the world. But I feel like that's not going to happen under
5: this situation. And then what about Jing Chu? So Ching Chu has been a top student since primary school. He has really had you know the top grades in his class, got into a top middle school and it was around the time that he was in middle school that he took a look around and started to imagine the freedom that might come with studying abroad
1: during my um, third year in middle school, I feel like there's a need for me to really explore the other societies that is kind of when I started to think about an overseas education,
5: so he set his sights on, you know, the United States. And as a top student with top grades, sitting in Beijing, he took a look at the U.S. and thought, you know what, I should go to Harvard.
1: U.S. was a and still is a very popular destination for Chinese students. And um, at that time, the only thing I know about U.S. education is Harvard, and that is the school that I wanted to get in at that time. And, well, I'm (laughs) somewhere around um, my goal right now.
5: January of this year, they sent in their applications. Everything seemed like it was on track. Their grades were good. You know, their essays were in. And then comes
0: the coronavirus. And what were they seeing in terms of what was happening in the U.S. that had started to concern them? I mean, obviously, just the, the spread of the virus. But how did that begin to manifest in terms of their their ability to come and get an American education.
5: So if you can go back to January February it feels like so long ago now in your minds, you know, the first thing for them was that their, you know, high school, their senior year was almost immediately at home, but they sort of assumed like everyone else at the time that this was something that was happening in China. So they, you know, kept Plugging along, they were doing their high school coursework from their childhood bedrooms in Beijing. But by, you know, March, late March, when acceptances started to come in, the situation looked quite different. What did they think about that when they saw that news? They were expecting their acceptances in late March. And this was just around the time that the coronavirus was really starting to hit New York City and hit New York hard.
3: Uh, We're not at the apex, so we're still in the stage where we have the luxury, if you will, of gathering as much as we can. So uh, the 1,000 ventilators from China and the 140 from Oregon, and we're still
5: shopping. Over the next few weeks through late March and April, they had big decisions to make. I think for Jingchu, the choice was pretty easy. He found out that he had been accepted to Yale.
1: I kind of expected that moment to be a really exhilarating moment. But apparently coronavirus changed all this. I was just stuck in my room when I realized I was admitted to Yale.
5: You know, he was pretty sure right away that he he would take it and, you know, was hopeful that things would get better. Haile's decision was much more complex. She found out in late March that, you know, she had been waitlisted for her top choice, University of Virginia, Around the same time, um, she found out that she'd been accepted to a joint program between Columbia and Sciences Po, which is a school in France. It was a program that she applied to, she said, sort of on a whim, you know, but as things started to get worse in New York, her sort of backup option became her go-to and she decided not to come to the U.S. I feel like that's the
4: better choice for me under this situation because, I mean, Columbia is a really good school. And that's what Chinese students are looking for. They are looking for um, receiving a good education and get this degree so that later in life they are more competitive.
0: And this would also have been around the time that there were a lot of policies coming out of the U.S. or announcements from President Trump that made the situation of international students seem a lot more complicated. I remember hearing about how there was concern that students who were taking online classes, who were international students, could potentially get deported if they weren't able to take in-person classes.
5: I believe it was in early July while they're, you know, supposed to be enjoying their summer after high school, where there was an announcement that international students in the U.S. cannot take an online-only course load. Now, that's always been a rule, though it had been sort of informally waived after the coronavirus pandemic hit. Um, But that announcement from U.S. immigration officials sent a total panic through the International Student Corps, um, you know, people weren't sure am i going to get deported will my online credits count towards my degree and for a lot of students including you know tens of thousands of chinese students that was just sort of you know another blow
0: after uh, months of uncertainty and if jing chu at that point was had decided that he was going to be going to yale how did that affect him and his uh understanding of whether or not he was actually going to be able to get to connecticut to be able to do that
5: so even for students who wanted to come back to the United States or come to the United States for the first time for fall semester, it was very unclear and remains unclear whether or not they will be able to do so. So where has Jing
0: Chu ended up in all of this? Like is he on his way here? Is is he here already? Is he still planning to start this fall semester in person? He's not.
5: I would say by early summer, he kind of knew in his heart that as much as he had been dreaming of a fall semester on campus at Yale, that he didn't think it was a good idea and that he didn't think it was safe.
1: For the fall semester, I'm anticipating that I cannot enter the United States, at least for the fall semester. But I'm right now looking at a full year in China, taking online classes, given everything. This
5: is not an ideal setup. Nobody wants to be having the freshman year of college from their childhood bedroom.
1: This will sound cynical, but it feels that the world has failed us. (laughs) Because, you know, at the start of the pandemic, we in Beijing, in different parts of China, I have friends in Wuhan, we we knew this is serious, but we kind of anticipated that um, this would be contained by most other countries. And um, this is They're shocking, they're surprising, they're disappointing.
5: These are kids, and and he specifically is a kid who really believed in the power of a U.S. education. He believed in what a Yale education means. And he's been left, you know, stranded and and smarting a little bit from these policies and comments that have really sought to demonize international students and and demonize China, China and Chinese students in particular.
0: Do you think that the pandemic is gonna is gonna make bigger long term changes in how foreign students think about the American education system and and whether or not they continue to have these dreams of of coming to institutions in, in America? U.S. institutions want these students, and it's really important
5: for them to keep them interested in coming to the United States. And I think students still want to believe that that is possible. What I'm hearing from students and also from university administrators is that, you know, the current crop of students who are already sort of on the path to U.S. education or already mid-degree are probably going to continue. But what we're watching to see is what the high school juniors and sophomores are thinking for their plans. Are they going to still apply to top U.S. schools? Probably. I think people still see the value in a Harvard degree or a Yale degree. But what I'm hearing is that they might also apply to Canada or the U.K. or Australia. And if the U.S. can't get its act together, make it safe for students to come and be on campus, then, yeah, they'll go elsewhere.
0: Emily Rahala covers foreign affairs for The Post. And now, one more thing about what it's like to start your freshman year of college during a pandemic. I
3: think the way that the virus is affecting incoming freshmen, this group of people, in a really unique way, that time between high school and college during a normal year when there's not a pandemic is already stressful. It's such a big moment. My name is Lauren Mumpkin, and I am an education reporter at The Post. You know, I was thinking a lot about the summer between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college when I was just, you know, being anxious and also being excited and worried about the transition. Throw a pandemic into it.
0: All this as schools and colleges across the country struggle with their reopening plans. Here in-
3: Throw an economic crisis into it.
1: American families struggling during the pandemic.
3: It, it makes it even more difficult. And I really wanted to capture those stories and understand what kind of decisions young people were making and how... Those decisions ultimately will affect I, I think the rest of their lives.
6: My name is Adriana Williams. I'm 18 years old. I'm from Jersey City, New Jersey, and I go to the illustrious Howard University. My school is fully online, so I'm I'm home.
3: So Adriana, she has wanted to go to Howard University for years. And You know, she applied when she was a senior. She was ready to go. And all of a sudden, it didn't really make a ton of sense to apply for loans and, you know, do all this stuff when the economy isn't great.
6: Money is just not looking right, and I can't, and I, and it was, it was to the point where I literally couldn't go. I could not go to school. The balance was not paid, and no one in my family had good enough credit to co-sign on my loan.
3: And so all of a sudden, kind of her, her goal for most of high school to go to this university didn't make sense because of the pandemic and what it has done to higher education. And so I think her big kind of decision-making process really revolved around money. She was considering a community college that was closer to home. She would save a lot of money doing that. It was really about the financial implications of this pandemic and, and figuring out what was the best for her and her family you know, the decision to take out loans right now, that's going to affect you, you know, for the rest of your life.
6: When the pandemic started up, I really didn't think it would affect my college at all. <laughs> like zero percent did I think that it would be like this.
3: I think, think the big theme is just the decisions that these students have had to make um, because of the pandemic. I, I think that You know, we hear a lot about young people, college students, breaking rules and wanting to party, not wearing masks. I think that definitely is happening. But these were students who really wanted to play by the rules, really just wanted as normal a college experience as possible, tried as hard as they could to make it happen. And it just didn't happen. Or, you know, they had to change it and, and make alterations to their original plans, which is something that everyone is having to do in different ways. Um, but if you're an incoming freshman, this is, you know, these are the ways those decisions could play out.
6: So once they put out the statement saying that no one is coming on campus, the tuition was significantly reduced to the fact where we could pay for it in cash. Like that, That's how small the balance was. I'm going to be running for Miss Freshman. So, you know, I might, I think that I can do a good job. And even if I don't end up winning Miss Freshman, I think I will have a lot of fun running for Miss Freshman. So, I'm going to try.
0: Lauren Lumpkin is an education reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. It is the first of the month, which is the perfect time to start a digital subscription to The Washington Post, where you can read and see and watch the reporting from journalists that you already hear on the podcast every day. To subscribe, go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.